Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cool Zone Media. Welcome to It Could Happen Here. I'm Garrison Davis. This is the show where we talk about how everything is kind of falling apart and how we can sometimes put it back together. Joining me is uh, is uh, my 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 dear dear collaborator and friend James Stout. Good good morning, James. Good morning, Garrison. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Um, and we got a very special episode here today. We are talking with with four people um, who have put together a new book by AK Press called No Parseron. Um, we're we're gonna have kind of a little bit of a like a group discussion about anti-fascist history and this kind of this the state of anti-fascism in the past few years. I know this is how I kind of got started with radical politics growing up in Portland, Oregon. You see Nazis marching around in your street, and you're like, oh well, this is obviously a problem. Someone should probably do something <laughs> about this. Um, and stuff has changed a lot the past the past few years. I mean, like the the anti-fascist movement that I got kind of, that I kind of got into in like 2018 you know it's very different now and it's i don't know there's there's these types of things live on through like oral histories as well as you know books um and i think it's really cool to have these types of conversations so uh joining us today is uh, shane burley emily gorchinski michael novick and daryl lamont jakins uh greetings everyone uh i'm gonna hand it over to shane and you can kind of uh talk about the book i guess yeah Thanks, Garrison. Thanks, James, for for having us on the uh, the whole crew of us. Yeah, this book is, was something came out last year, but we had been working on it for about four years. Um, I'm starting in 2018. Um, I was drunk with Kim Kelly in New York, and we thought it'd be really great to put together something <laughs> with all of our friends. Um, and when you do it with a big group of people, it takes like four or five years uh, to pull off. Um, but really, the idea was trying to do something that was bigger than what had been written about anti-fascism at that point, which was shockingly narrow, what people understood of as of just a few movements, mostly very recent history, 
Um, and so much wasn't being included in that conversation. So the idea was, how can we build out like a much bigger picture of this by including as many voices as possible? Um, so we ended up getting a couple of dozen folks together that had different takes on it. Some talking about tech, some talking about deep history, some talking about anti-fascism in other countries, other continents. Um, and so in general, the idea was to make it feel like a discussion between people who either know each other or should be like in some kind of comradeship with each other. So that was sort of where it came together. I think with this conversation, the way we were thinking about this is I wanted to, I wanted the opportunity to talk with basically my friends about their history a little bit. And so I asked three folks that had a really long history with doing organizing work. And so I thought it would be cool. Maybe if we go through talking to them a little bit about their prehistory or their early history organizing. Um, and Michael, your history goes back the furthest, <laughs> as you know it does. So I thought we could kick off with you and then talk with Emily and then Daryl, um, just kind of getting into your background. So how did you get started in movement work? Actually, I should say first, when did you get started in movement work? Uh, well, uh, yeah, so I sometimes feel like a little bit of a dinosaur. I was born in 1947. So uh, the, the fascism in power was a fairly recent uh reality in my life my father was a uh immigrant from poland uh, came here in the 30s most of his family was destroyed in uh, bialystok they had an uprising there similar to the warsaw ghetto uprising and almost everybody was liquidated uh in that process so there's a family history there uh, for me um also obviously grew up in the shadow of you know the u.s atomic bombing of hiroshima and nagasaki and uh the u.s uh, incarceration of Japanese Americans in concentration camps. So, uh, you know, those are realities in my life. Uh, uh, I lived in a, you know, uh, Orthodox Jewish immigrant working class uh, family and uh, neighborhood in Brooklyn, which is now dominated by extremely right wing uh, forces, Borough Park. It's uh, uh, one of the bastions of probably, uh, uh, you know, neo fascist, Republican, uh, pro Zionist. Uh, but somehow, uh, when I grew up there, that, that was not the case. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I got involved in politics in the '60s, uh, in uh, you know, student movement stuff, anti-war stuff, and um, in uh, at Brooklyn College, which when I was there was a, a, a free public four-year uh, college, part of the city university system in New York, and uh, I was actually a, eventually elected student body president. Uh, they, they had liquidated the uh, student government uh, uh, earlier uh, when uh, you know, people opposed the Korean War, and we had a, uh, a struggle to get you know, for student rights and uh, anti-war stuff and so on. And uh, we succeeded in getting uh, student uh, body elections for officers for the first time in about a dozen years. Uh, but uh, you know, I was part of all that uh, anti-war and uh, uh, anti police brutality and other stuff that was going on in Brooklyn at the time. And then we raised the question of the fact that Brooklyn College was 98% white or 99% white uh, in a borough that even then was, you know, majority black and Puerto Rican. And uh, uh, suddenly all the student support we had had for all the other struggles, cops off the campus and, you know, uh, Navy off the campus and so on. Uh, and we got, you know, got a dean of students fired and other stuff. But as soon as we raised the question of opening the campus up and having open admissions to the city university system and a special admissions program for black and Puerto Rican high school students, uh, most of our student support evaporated. 
And uh, for me, that was an object lesson that unless you're, uh, you know, consciously uh, organizing about internalized and institutionalized racism, uh, everything else you do that is, you know, uh, progressive or anti-imperialist or anti-war is kind of a house of cards or, you know, uh, castles made of sand. And um, in particular, in, in raising those issues, we discovered that there was an, a fascist element on the campus. There were people who uh, formed the early Jewish Defense League in, in Brooklyn who were primarily anti-Black. And uh, also there's a group called the Youth, uh, uh, what is it, Young Americans for Freedom, YAF, which was like the youth wing of the uh, National Review, uh, you know, right-wing uh, Republican formation. And they were pretty openly fascistic in their politics. So, uh, you know, it became a question that if you were doing, you know, anti-racist and anti-war and anti-capitalist organizing, you were going to face not just, uh, you know, a struggle by, uh, against the force of the state, but that there were reactionary elements within particularly white society. And I think because of settler colonialism, uh, you know, there's a mass base for that. And um, uh, struck by the title of the show, I'll just say, I don't know if people are familiar with the book, It Can't Happen Here, but obviously your title is a reflection. Uh, it could happen here. I think it has happened here, for one thing. I, I think that fascism has always been an element of U.S. political uh, culture because of settler colonialism, uh, you know, uh, uh, M.A. Cesare's uh, definition of fascism is that it's uh, bringing the met the methods of rule of the colonies into the metropole, but the U.S. is a settler colony, and therefore there are c colonized people inside this country and always have been, and so uh, fascistic elements of, you know, slave labor, genocide, you know, land theft, all the rest of it have always been part, and part of that is also creating that mass base uh, within uh, the settler population or that, that supports, you know, that leadership. Uh, if, so uh, anyway, I, I think that, uh, uh, that, you know, the, both those personal aspects and, and the, that consciousness. Uh, and uh, so I came in contact with, you know, the very radical forces in uh, the Black Freedom Circle. Back then, the Black Panther Party was very active. There was a, one of the people in the Black Student Union joined the Black Panther Party. Uh, you know, that was the period of... Uh, very fascist attacks, and the Panthers uh, had formed the uh, uh, National Committees to Combat Fascism and had an analysis that, uh, you know, the U.S. was fascistic. And, uh, you know, George Jackson uh, at that time said, you know, fascism is already here. And I think he meant it, you know, literally. And uh, so that's part of the perspective I've, I've carried through for, you know, I don't know what that is, 60 years now, uh, close to. Yeah. I mean, I think. Really quickly, I would like to hear kind of what your experience was with forming John Brown. Where did the idea come from? Because I think for a lot of a lot of people who are thinking of recent anti-fascist American anti-fascist history, that ends up being kind of a starting point for a certain kind of no platform tactic. So how did you first kind of develop that? What brought you in? Uh, so, yeah, uh, just to say uh, I was, uh, you know, coming out of the movement as I did, uh, I, I moved from New York to California because there was a, a strong, uh, uh, there was a newspaper called The Movement, which was the, the newspaper basically of Friends of SNCC. It was the people who left SNCC uh, when SNCC uh, adopted a black power analysis and said that white people who were involved should go organize in the white community. And there was a, you know, kind of a, uh, I was part of a working class organizing collective in Hayward, California. Eventually out of that, I got uh, connected with, uh, you know, some of the people that later formed Prairie Fire Organized Committee. I was in um, a group in the Bay Area called uh, the June 28th Union. It was a gay men's 
pro-socialist, anti-imperialist, pro-feminist uh, collective of mostly people of European descent. And we went to uh, what was called the Hard Times Conference, which was uh, put on by Prairie Fire Organizing Committee in Chicago. And uh, it turned out that there was secretly an effort by the uh, Weather Underground to uh, uh, come up from underground and create a new communist party. And they serviced that at that conference. But uh, there was a lot of opposition to that from across the board, from different uh, Black Liberation, uh, American Indian movement, uh, you know, Puerto Rican independence struggle, Chicano movement, all of them uh, you know, felt that there was a sellout of the politics there. Anyway, out of that process, I, I, I was part of, uh, I, I joined a Prairie Fire Organized Committee eventually, and uh, that split. And then uh, there was a West Coast group, which kept the name Prairie Fire. The East Coast uh, formed a group called the May 19th Communist Organization, and they launched the original uh, John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, an initiative from the prisons. The, the uh, organized uh, prisoners in uh, New York had discovered that there was an extensive network of clan claverns that were based in the prison guards and some of the white prisoners. And they asked for outside supporters to begin to expose that and deal with it and help them deal with it. And uh, John Brandon Declan Committee was formed out of that. Uh, separately, uh, Prairie Fire on the, on the West Coast had formed a group called Take a Stand Against the Klan. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, that was the period that uh, the beginning of the sort of Nazification of the Klan was going on. So this is the uh, 70s. And um, eventually, you know, under uh, a challenge from particularly the uh, New African Independence Movement, the Malcolm X uh, Grassroots Movement, New African People's Organization, which both pray fire on the West Coast and uh, May 19th and the East Coast were, uh, you know, connected to, they pushed for a joint organization. So at that point, there was a kind of reconstitution of John Burnett, the Klan Committee. And uh, so I was part of that. And we merged, you know, there were chapters in Atlanta, Chicago, uh, the Bay Area, Los Angeles, where I ended up, um, in New York, uh, I think Bowling Green, maybe the couple of Connecticut. And uh, so they were quite active in that period in, uh, you know, uh, street level confrontations and, uh, you know, other exposures of, of uh, early neo-Nazi activity and Klan activity. And, uh, uh, but particularly from a, a perspective of conscious and active solidarity with the black freedom struggle and particularly the new African independence movement, which is a very high level of uh, unity. Uh, and uh, over a period of time, they, you know, there was a struggle to broaden that out and try to be a more uh, all embracing organization that could relate to the struggle. There were a lot of different formations at that time. There was the, uh, National Anti-Klan Network, and there was uh, a couple of others, and there were differing politics among all of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, John Brown Anti-Klan Committee that time uh, took more of a position of pro-direct action, and also, as I say, conscious uh, uh, solidarity with the Black freedom struggle as a basis for doing that work. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? 
I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Anti-Klan Network, I think, so so people kind of know that's where the Southern Poverty Law Center eventually came out of. Another networks of these different groups out here in Oregon, the Rural Organizing Project was sort of like a uh, down the line there. But I, I think it's interesting, too, about the founding story. Um, I was talking with our mutual friend, Lisa Roth, who is part of that the founding of that mm-hmm. very first iteration of the John Brown Committee was they were doing prison organizing with Black Panthers right. in upstate New York, and they were writing these letters saying uh, the the prison guards are Klan. And they thought, you mean they're really racist? You know, obviously, they're, they're yeah. prison guards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and when they went and looked it up, no, the um, yeah. the president of the prison guard union was the grand dragon of the state KKK. And yeah, they were also, actually He had a position within the prison system as the head of the sort of education, uh, activ- educational activities in the prisons and was using his formal position within the prison system to organize white prisoners along with the, the guards into Klan Claverns. Which seems like a total, that was sort of a validation of, with the centerpiece of John Brown being that cops and Klan 
have that kind of collaboration because that was their kind of the founding like lesson of that organizing sure the, the blue by day white by night and a lot of those slogans come out of that period and you know i, I think it is you know it's related to the later the ara uh, line that you know fascism is built from above and below that there's you know elements within the state that are operating independently but they're also state forces and then there are you know independent yeah so-called revolutionary fascists that you know claim to be opposing the state but are not really well i think to fast forward a little bit quite a bit um Emily, I don't remember when we first met each other. Obviously, it was probably shortly after Unite the Right happened. But how did you first get drawn into organizing? Did you have a long history before that happened? Or were you just part of getting involved around the the ramp up to that? No, I think, um, you know, compared to the other folks here, I'm, I'm sort of the uh, the summer child of the of the group, right? I, I don't have a, um, a super long history in organizing. I think that... Um, you know, I came to anti-fascism before Unite the Right happened. I, I work in the tech industry and sometime sort of around the Gamergate era, um, I started noticing how white supremacist the tech industry had become, right? It was uh, sort of this nexus for a lot of this um, strongly libertarian, strongly supremacist mindset. Um, it was sort of the worst of that meritocratic ideal that a lot of us had to um, experience in university and in our workplaces, and it just seemed like it was getting out of control. And that was kind of at the same time that we were seeing a lot more women come into the tech industry. We were starting to see a lot of changes in the space. Um, and then there was sort of like this, this vacuum left by Gamergate as that all sort of died down, a lot of this sort of energy needed to go somewhere. And so I started speaking out against um, some white supremacist organizing that was happening at conferences and things like that. And I think the first wake up call for me happened when um, some folks that are, are linked to Milo Yiannopoulos um, put together a list of, of SJWs, social justice warriors. Um, and this was journalists and activists and, and people who were speaking out. And I somehow made that list. And I realized after you know, looking at this and, and seeing what was going on, um, that being apolitical, being sort of just somebody with an opinion wasn't, you know, there, there was no way to be, that wasn't a defense against um, what was coming. And so I just sort of looked inside and said, well, if this is the way it's going to be, like, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out what to do. Um, I didn't really have a lot of organizing ties. I didn't really have a network. So like every other person, I just, you know, shouted at Twitter and somehow that worked. Um, the irony of this all is that all of this was going on. I was starting to do, you know, digital activism, using my my tech skills to um, try to, to shine light on um, things that were wrong in, in the federal government and the Trump administration and things like that. And I really just wanted to step away from that. I, I kind of had like, I went to Prague after um, Trump was inaugurated. I, I wanted to like, you know, clear the air a little bit. I didn't like the fact that I was on this hit list um, that was put together by people who have like a couple of handshakes away from the president's desk. So I went to Europe, I went to Prague and I, I cleared my head. And when I came back, I said, you know what? I'm going to just focus on local activism. I'm going to focus on the issues that are in my community. I knew that we had things going on with our local low-income housing um, space. We had a lot of, you know, 
stuff around the statues that was coming up in in, in town. And uh, I didn't really expect, like, it was kind of random that Unite the Right was, you know, destined for Charlottesville. And so um, all of the work, all of the organizing that I had started to do that spring and that, or I guess that winter and that spring um, started to pay off as, you know, as Charlottesville became the target of um, all of the neo-Nazis. So I think it was sort of, I don't want to say it's it's fortunate because it's not really the greatest, like, it's not a positive thing that that's what happened, but I guess that I am lucky that as I came to this awakening, it was happening, you know, before and not after, um, and that I was able to use the network that I was building, the audience I was building in order to help fight back. So, yeah, I guess that's that's sort of like, I, I don't know that I would have been, you know, as much as dedicated as I was if it wasn't for that very personal um, sort of experience. And I look back at that and like, I'm kind of embarrassed by that, but, um, you know, we all have our own paths. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's something interesting about that year in advance of the Unite the Right, where, people, where different groups were testing the waters a little bit and how that was their ability to ramp up in the area. But it was also the anti-fascist ability to ramp up, you know, so talking with Mimi and other uh, organizers there, like those earlier events, like the earlier Klan rally that happened, like, you know, months earlier, or kind of those that early flash mob that Richard Spencer led, that gave people the opportunity to build up the base. So how did you kind of shift to focusing on that? First, I guess, how did you hear about Unite the Right as this big kind of like target event? But what was the steps along the way there? Yeah, I think. Um... One of the things that really um, that I really tried to do that year was to use the experience I was having traveling to try to understand the history of um, movements that were against, you know, great state powers. Right. When I was in Prague, I spent a lot of time reading about and looking into and walking through the sites of where the Prague Spring took place and where the Velvet Revolution took place and how these um groups of people were able to overcome this massive amount of state violence and still be successful. Um, and when Richard Spencer first came to town, that first uh, flash mob, what is now called Charlottesville 1.0, um, I was in Berlin at mm -hmm. the time. I woke up to see what was going on. Um, and it was, you know, I think, again, just sort of these, you know, the universe coming into alignment. As that was happening, there was also this big uh anti-Nazi demonstration that was happening in Berlin. So I took that opportunity to go and learn about what anti-fascists are doing in other countries and other localities, how they are organizing, how they spread their message. Um, and so I think that, you know, as, as I learned about all of this going on, what the first thing that I tried to do is just look around and say, what can we learn from people who have been here before, who, who have done this before and have this in their living memory? And that's what I tried to take back um, to Charlottesville. And then, you know, I think it was after that trip, I, I was in Berlin in May. I came back for that trip. I joined an anti-fascist march um, almost as soon as I got back. And that's when we had heard, we've like learned about the two rallies, the July 8th KKK rally and the August 12th Unite the Right. And at that point, like from that moment, it was just like every waking moment of, of my day was spent organizing um, for, those, for, for those rallies. It's this sort of effect that just circumstance sort of speeds people's capacity to do it, but not maybe even maybe capacity is not the right word. The kind of understanding of like what it takes to do that work. So I was interviewing um, 
a number of the rabbis in the area, and these were not super political folks. These were not people like from some activist synagogues or mainline synagogues. Um, but they connected with a number of faith leaders from the historically black churches, both of which were saying, okay, we're both going to be targeted here. Um, and there's no, there, there's no institutions coming to help really. There's no one we can count on here. So they created those collaborative spaces and really pretty complicated and effective organizing models, having no experience doing it because of that hyper intense space, which I think is in a way, that's why those circumstances have such an important effect on it. So how did you basically plan those couple of weeks in advance? How were you thinking about it? And what was the kind of groups you were working with? Were these like networks that were coming together or formal organizations? Yeah, I think um, there were a bunch of, you know, organizations on the ground that I, I connected with. Um, certainly, we had a local chapter of Surge showing up for racial justice, and um, they were doing a lot of organizing. Um, and there was, you know, the Anarchist People of Color, APOC. Um, they were a great group of people that we connected with and that I, I um, connected with. And it also happened that I started dating somebody who was also connected to the local anti-fascist scene at the time. So I was sort of brought into all of these circles through that relationship as well. Um, and so I think that sort of all of these things combined um, really made it clear that we had a small but very knowledgeable base of people that could organize. And, and I think that one of the things that we did exceptionally well in the lead up is because we had such a small core um, of people who don't, who didn't really have, um, you know, a breadth of experience, uh, you know, in doing this, we were able to compartmentalize really well. You know, some people were focusing on, you know, what are we going to do with the, you know, uh, the clergy collective and how are they going to organize? What is their action going to be? Um, and we had a media collective and that was where I put most of my energy. Um, and so I think that we had these different groups of people that could focus on different things that helped helped us unblock ourselves from like the grander uh, sort of more theoretical, more abstract um, way to respond. We just we didn't have the time to debate over tactics. We didn't have time to debate over the ideology of anti-fascism, what the right thing to do was or what the best thing to do was. We really had to focus our time on what do we have time to do? What can we achieve given the constraints that we have? Um, and with those sort of constraints, I think that maybe we left some good actions on the table, but um, what we came up with, I think, was was fairly effective. Do you think that it carried the those community folks together through and after the event? Do you feel like those community ties were still there? I think some of them are and some of them are not. Um, there are certainly community ties that have broken. There was a lot of um, pressure that built up. There were differences of opinions that we set aside and, and hoped to resolve afterwards. Um, and those did not necessarily get resolved. In, in some cases, some interpersonal um, issues, some interorganizational issues. I remember at one point there was a, um, a decision that was being made driven by a couple of the organizing groups um, that they would not support anyone that was going to be armed. And this was a tension point between those groups and groups like Redneck Revolt that were coming armed to help support um, anti-fascist rallies. And that, like, that is something that still, you know, affected me pretty well because I was being targeted um, because of how present I was in social media and Twitter and things like that. I needed to have an armed security uh, detail. And 
you know, that created a lot of, a lot of tension. I didn't have legal, like I had legal support pulled away from me. I didn't have legal support until, um, until November of that year when noise of a lawsuit started happening. Um, so I think that uh, some of those things did create some, some tension that led to fracturing of community, but some things actually really did tie the community back together and, and kept it close, even as we have drifted apart and moved into different, um, you know, different cities, different countries, different states, whatever. I think it's a bit of both. You know, there's one of the founding members of Rosetta Antifa said something that kind of stuck with me, which is that a lot of people will look to anti-fascism as a way to rebuild the left or as to build this big mass united left. But that's not actually what's being demanded of the situation. The situation is very pretty straightforward as to basically destroy this opposition of people and how you do that. I mean, you can have considerations about how to bring in the community and try and align with other groups, but in the end, there's other decisions are being made. Um, and so people often get disappointed when that ends up being what those projects actually are. Now, Daryl, you were down there on Unite the Right, right? Correct. Correct. That was there. You're everywhere when we're there. I, I try to I be. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, one of the things about Charlottesville that was really important is that we saw it coming and we had seen it coming months, probably even years before it even happened. Hell, we saw it before um, in my case, because um, one of those everywhere places I had been was um, in York, Pennsylvania, about 20 years prior, where you had somebody from a group called the World Church created. He, he was um, he was a local from World Church of the Creator that invited the leader of that group, Matt Hale, to um, hold a public meeting at their local library. It was a tactic that that particular group had. And what that resulted in was about 300 neo-Nazis coming to York, PA, about three, 400 anti-fascists coming out to oppose them, and you pretty much saw a parallel of um, Charlottesville, as I said, um, up to and including a, um, this was January 12, 2012, and up to and including a, someone driving into a group of people. And uh, no, no one, pat, no one died, no one was killed, um, hurt pretty bad. I think the only reason why um, he served two years was because one of the people that he hit was a cop. Um, now we fast forward to um, Charlottesville, and ironically, I saw the person that organized things in York representing Vanguard America at Charlottesville. And two days prior, we, my crew, One People's Project, had a little bit of a podcast where we basically said that after everything that was going on in Charlottesville prior to um, Charlottesville 1.0, Charlottesville 2.0, and um, then this whole Unite the Right thing was happening, where they was just making a big production out of having this event. Um, we pretty much um, were resigned to the idea that this was going to be the so-called alt-rights ultima, in the sense that this was going to be what sent everybody, you know, realizing how bad things can get, you know, it, it's going to be bad. We expected it to be bad. I went to Charlottesville armed. And I think really 
it was one of the first times that I ever did strap up when I went to one of these things. Um, when everything went down, I mean, prior to everything going down, I was just basically doing my thing, videotaping everyone, um, cracking jokes. I was playing Happy Warrior um, because, you know, you see this all, all before, up to and including the fighting. The fighting is there. I mean, that happens all the time. Even that massively, I'm that, I'm used to it. What I wasn't used to was when someone was murdered, when someone was killed, because that's never happened. And that that actually freaked me out. It actually, um, I actually got really pissed off when that went down. And I think a lot of us did. Because that, because if we recognize this ourselves, if we who have been on the front lines all these years recognize that this was the direction it was going in, we also recognize that we had the ability to do something about it beforehand. That's one of the reasons why the ACLU got into a lot of trouble, because they were busy trying to protect the free speech of everybody in um, all the neo-Nazis there and insisting that they were going to be in that park because that's where they wanted to be. And when everything went down, a lot of people just looked at the ACLU and said, could you at least recognize just how dangerous they was trying to make the situation? ACLU, I believe, will no longer represent groups that insist on holding armed rallies. I, I think that was one of the things that they had said that they were um, one of the change-ups. And even with the whole discussion about their freedom of speech and saying it was a matter of their free speech, people's attitudes were just like, okay, fine, that's a given, but couldn't you let them get their own attorneys? Why do you have to keep defending the worst of society in the name of a free speech that, frankly, doesn't seem to be afforded the rest of us whenever we are opposing them. That's the attitude that a lot of people had. And it was really the last straw. Charlottesville was really the last straw. And people really got on a different footing in dealing with um, fascism. I was used to people trying to pull all the stops and trying to defend the quote unquote, defend the freedom of speech of not just um, the fascists in our society, but the right in general. So every time I would criticize somebody on the right, somebody would try to say things ranging from we have to respect their freedom of speech or we should just ignore them. You know, and and, and I hated it whenever it was um, and when it was combined, the best way to fight hate speech is with more speech. You use the more speech. Well, why don't you just ignore them? That stopped after Charlottesville. All of a sudden, people started um, saying, okay, we need to start doing something about this group. That's why you saw 40,000 people in Boston protesting against um, the fascists up there when they tried to hold a rally maybe a week or two later. You know, That's why you saw um, websites like the Daily Stormer get, you know, yanked out of um yanked out of the mainstream and now they're sitting on the dark web that's why you saw people disowning their family members because they went to this rally we are seeing people being um not just james fields but others being held legally 
accountable for what they did in um in Charlottesville. And all of those individuals are fascists. All of the individuals are white supremacists. We realized that we had the ability to do something and we started doing something. Unfortunately, we stopped after Trump lost. And people tried to go back to that whole just ignore them routine. And within months, we got January 6th. And that was when they tried, they ratcheted it up again about how we're going to um, really curtail the right and all and, and all that we but now that just became rhetoric. We're here again because you're starting to see a lot of the rumblings with um, the attacks on the trans community. Um, basically, conservatives across the country are primarily trying to essentially do something to the rest of the country. I mean, you heard that in a, when you go to the CPAC meeting, the Conservative Political Action Conference, um, a couple of months ago, all they did was talk about things they wanted to do to America, you know, <laughs> and this is what we have been fighting all our lives. This is what we have been warning about all our lives. And while anti-fascism has essentially become mainstream, uh, there is still a lot more work that we have to do in order to basically um, see all that work bear fruit. And that's um, pretty much the deal. Yeah. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. 
Listen to Woke App Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That for that 40,000 person kind of response to a Proud Boy rally in Boston just a couple of weeks after Unite the Right, it was one of the most common sense kind of moments. And it totally dwarfed them. I mean, 40,000 people will do whatever they want, right? 40,000 people will stop any kind of small march, even a large one. And so the lesson was learned and it seemed to be forgotten immediately. And they're a perfect example of that because that group that they were protesting went on to become Super Happy Fun America. They're the group that are now pushing the straight pride rallies and they are really in the forefront of all the anti trans, anti LGBTQ plus activity. And, uh, and of course some of them got arrested in in, at January 6th. So they pretty much built up their stock since then, but so did we. And it's just a matter of using that stock. Who's going to use that stock more effectively. (laughs) Yeah. I think it was really interesting how you centered this, like um, this shift that happened among people who weren't previously involved in anti-fascism from this kind of neoliberal understanding or maybe even liberal understanding of the sort of struggle against fascism being one that could take place in the open with free speech being the most important thing that's at stake. And one Mm -hmm. that moved like in a moment, right? When when a a Nazi killed Heather Heyer to Mm -hmm. there's a, ton more at stake than we thought and i think you're right that we've gone back uh like right we've, we've gone back to to the previous understanding which i think is what everyone kind of or a lot of people i guess they felt like they could vote for joe biden and then it was done like it, it, it had disappeared um, and i'd be interested to hear all of your insights with all your experience in the movement and like what needs to be done i guess to keep that organizing going as we're in this kind of nadir or, I don't know, thermidor of uh, like anti-fascist organizing in the U.S. Uh, if I could offer something from maybe a little bit of a longer view. Uh, yeah, you know, please. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, Daryl talked about somebody being killed and that never happening before, but of course it has happened before. And so 1979, uh, there was a, a death of the Klan rally in Greensboro, North Carolina, and people were, uh, you know, attacked and killed by uh, an alliance of the Klan and the Nazis uh, with, uh, you know, the the uh, ATF uh, had people in one and the, uh, I forget, I think the FBI had people in the other. 
and were instrumental in bringing the two forces together to attack the uh, anti-Klan group. And uh, several people were killed in that. And then uh, same thing with ARA in, in uh, uh, Las Vegas, Len Spit Newborn, a black uh, tattoo artist, and uh, Darren Shirsty, uh, uh was actually, I think, a sailor, uh, active duty sailor who were in uh, anti-racist action in Las Vegas, were executed and killed by neo-Nazis there. And so I think there is a history of, of that that we need to be aware of, but also that that there's ups and downs and lulls in in uh, both fascist organizing and anti-fascist organizing. One of the things that happened after the 79 killings is that uh, Ronald Reagan launched his uh, campaign for president in uh, uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi, the scene of the killing of uh, uh, Sh- Cheney and Goodman on a state rights platform. And while he was president, you know, I brought in Pat Rob, uh, Pat Buchanan and, uh, you know, went to Bitburg. To, uh, so there's a long history of the state, uh, you know, playing footsie with these people. And I think we should recognize that. But also that uh, there are going to be ups and downs in in uh, in both fascist and anti-fascist organizing. And, uh, you know, to see that that I think the longer range perspective on that is important to understand. The other thing I, I did want to take a little exception to is is the idea that the role of anti-fascists is to destroy fascists. And I think that uh, I, I don't completely agree with that analysis. I think that uh, it's critical that actually anti-fascist forces see themselves as part of a revolutionary transformation of the society in its entirety. And that uh, the ability to actually reach and organizing people has to do with making it clear that fascists are not providing an alternative to what's wrong with the society, uh, although they claim to be. And that we are, that we're part of liberatory and, uh, you know, uh, self-determination elements, anti-colonial elements, uh, you know, support for sovereignty of indigenous people, uh, you know, support for LGBTQ people's rights and all those things that have have a positive aspect of, of a way to reorganize society in a different way than the fascists are putting forward. And I think that that is critical to trying to sustain a base and build a base by, you know, having a positive, you know, one of the things that I've been doing for many years, I published Turning the Tide, uh, which, you know, started as a little zine. We were sending it to the other chapters of anti-racist action and also into the prisons. And, you know, eventually we changed the subtitle of that to the Journal of Intercommunal Solidarity in the sense of saying, okay, it's not just anti-racist action, it's not just anti-fascist, but what are we for? You have to have a positive, if you really want to organize people, you have to have a positive sense of what you're struggling for, not just what you're struggling against. Yeah, Michael's right. Greensboro did happen. Um, I was really referring to, in recent time, it wasn't the, it was the first time for myself um, to be at a rally and not see anyone um, and see somebody um, get murdered. But yes, Greensboro, um, November 3rd, I believe, 1979 um, in North Carolina, that happened. And all the Klan members had actually gotten away with it. Um, they did not. Um, they were found. They, they cleared them. They simply That's cleared right. them. Meanwhile, they were in state court and federal court, both. Their, their claim was that they were not, uh, they were brought up on civil rights charges in the federal court, and they claimed they weren't against black people. They were just against communists. And that yeah. right there was something that even family members, when I first heard of it, remember, I'm a kid at this time. I'm sitting there listening to family members basically laugh about the situation because all they saw were Klan and communists, and they were just had the attitude of just let them kill each other, and that was actually a line that was said. I don't, I don't know 
which family member said it, but that was a line that stuck with me since I was a kid. And at the time, I wasn't really politically astute. I just that's how I um, recall that um, situation. And with Dan and Spit, the, um, the Las Vegas murders, um, um, that that is a different situation, however, because that was on the rally. They sought them out. That was basically on the off time, so to speak. Yeah, that was an assassination. Yes. And we've seen that before. Most certainly. Luke Kerner from um, Portland, Mm -hmm. for example. I mean, he survived, but he's a quadriplegic because somebody came after him. The the German police intercepted one when Adamoffen came to Germany to try to get me. I don't know if you know about that. Mm. Yeah. No, I didn't know. Yeah, that. Similar, it is I think same it was, thing. Yeah. I, I, because I have been fairly public, I've been doxxed and tracked down by uh, fascists on several different occasions in different places that I lived in. You know, we've had armed patrols to, you know, uh, at various points. It, you know, it, 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 it's clearly, you know, they, they do try to target people as, as well as, you know, uh, attacking mass actions. Emily, you've gotten in as much as anyone I've ever seen in terms of doxing and harassment and targeted attacks and threats like that. Wait, who are you referring to? Yeah, to oh, you. I think you. We, yeah. Oh, I think we've all gotten it bad. I don't. I don't think that there's any. There's no competition here. It, Contest. It, who has who has the most yeah. death threats on? Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. On eight uh, uh, Let's on let's show. take a tally yeah. off. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's control <laughs> after that. I, I did want to just jump back um, real quick to the, the thing that you were mentioning, uh, Michael, about, you know, building. Um, anti-fascism needs to be about building. And I think that there's two there's two sides to this. Um, I like to, to talk about, like, the breaking work, which is what um, a lot of the street anti-fascism is, is about, right? Like, sometimes Nazis come marching uh, into your town, and you have to break that. You have to stop that. You have to confront that. And you have to do things... Um, to make it so that they don't want to come back into your town or any other towns like your town. And I think that that's breaking work. You know, the work of tracking down Nazis, doxing them, exposing them, whatever, that's breaking work. I think that in the last few years has become more high profile for various reasons. But I think that as we're looking at, you know, what you were mentioning, Daryl, like the anti-trans legislation, the, the rise of the political far right in government and in power, we do need a, a different solution. Um, it, I'm not saying that you can't go out and like intercept Ron DeSantis's motorcade and like punch him in the face. I am saying it will probably end very badly for you if you try to do that, right? Right. So maybe what we actually also need is to try to um, build those alternative structures that are not reliant on the state, yeah. right? Um, you know, when we see these these trans bands coming in, like it's a horrible thing, but the only thing that actually comes through my mind is we have more tools, more resources now to create the networks of support than we've ever had in history. A lot of our energy should be pouring into supporting those networks, supporting that that care, supporting that mobility and that freedom of movement, rather than just trying to run up against this brick wall that is this Republican, you know, um, behemoth that is moving you know forward into into all of our rights like we're not going to face it down head on we need to go around it in some way and i think that 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 going around it is going to require that building that community that that um sort of redevelopment of um those alternative structures so i think it's so important to have that as well big thanks to shane burley for setting up this conversation the second half of our talk with michael novick 
Emily Gorchinsky and Daryl Lamont Jenkins will be coming out tomorrow. We'll talk a bit more about the modern state of anti-fascism and what things from the past might help inform us in the anti-fascist struggle of today. See you on the other side. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.